48th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. My name is Jennifer Grossman. You guys know me now by JAG. I am the CEO of the Atlas Society. We are the leading organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand uh, with a specialty in creative uh, vehicles like our pocket guides, our animated videos. Um, and narrative. Today, speaking of someone who has a fascinating narrative, we are uh, honored to be joined by Professor J.C. Hill, author of We Have Overcome. I'm going to get to his biography, but I just want to remind all of you now that we are just streaming across the spectrum. We are streaming on YouTube, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter. Of course, uh, we have our diehard um, regulars joining us here on Zoom. So uh, please start getting your questions teed up. You know how to just tap, type them in to the chat or into the, uh, into the comment stream. So uh, Professor Jason Hill is a philosophy professor at DePaul University in Chicago. He is the author of four books, including, as I mentioned, We Have Overcome, An Immigrant's Letter to the American People, which I also highly recommend uh, on Audible. His fifth book, What Do White Americans Owe Black People, is scheduled for publication um, in October uh, 2021. Professor Hill is an immigrant from Jamaica, he is deeply committed to uh, the absolutism of reason and frequently writes and speaks about ethics, moral psychology, American politics, and, uh, and objectivism specifically. Jason, welcome again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So um, we were chatting a little bit before we went live, and uh, I just um, was mentioning that I was particularly taken by your story. And I'm so glad that you included some of that uh, in your most recent book. So you were born and raised in Jamaica. Um, your, your book encapsulates the story and that of others uh, that you share with us emigrating to the United States. For you, it was, it seems to me, a kind of spiritual journey, which you began as a teenager. There was a political element, uh, having witnessed socialism's destruction of your birth country. There was a familial element uh, entwined with your father's aspirations and his struggle. And of course, there was a philosophical element as well. Would you share with us a little bit about that journey and how uh, it continues to shape your ideas today? Sure, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think as a child, I was always in love with America, which is really, really interesting because I grew up in a very, very, I mean, I was born in 1965 and Jamaica achieved independence in 1962. So I grew up in a society that felt quite British and I went to an English school and my sensibilities were actually forged in the crucibles of a very old styled English educational system. I mean, I was reared on on Dickens and and Lord Tennyson and Emily um, um, Jane Austen and and all, and and the, the British thinkers. I think I read two American novels um, until until I was about twenty. I hadn't read any American artists, but I fell in love. I had studied American history in high school, but not literature, and I fell in love with this country very very early on. Um, because something in my teenage years and in my early years thought of America as a great adventure place, a place where I could sort of rewrite 
the story of my life. And it was going to be this grand net canvas on which I could encode or inscript the narrative of who I wanted to become. I had a vision for being a writer and I was going to be a writer and I was going to be a magnificent writer and America was the place that I would become that sort of person that I couldn't really become on that tiny island nation of Jamaica. My mother had left Jamaica when I was three with my father and it should have been a four year journey, but because my father developed schizophrenia, um, it turned into a four, long, a four year long separation and we saw our parents twice and my mother came back when I was seven and um, she, I, st I had a very formal education, as I said, and it was a brilliant education. I was reading from the age of four and then reading Dickens and Dostoevsky and, and so on by the time I was seven or eight, these 800 page novels. But my mind, for some reason, Jennifer, was always just affixed to America, that America was a place where I belonged. I don't know why. I wasn't reading American novels, but I was watching American TV, by the way. And and I thought I needed I need to go to America. And my mother thought we were way too young. And um, so my grandmother sponsored my mother. She had a green card. And uh, my mother said, I'm coming. I, I can't support you. I can't pay your college school fees, but I'm coming to give you moral support. And so at 20, um, we decided to come. I had read a great deal of philosophy by the time I was 18, um, but and a great deal of literature, of course. But at 18, at 19, um, I, while I was being trained as a journalist and working as a journalist, a friend gave me this book called um, Atlas Shrugged and I didn't do anything with it. And she gave me a book called The Fountainhead and I didn't do anything with it. Then she summoned me to her house and she said, you've got to listen to this recording of this woman. She, her name is Ayn Rand. I said, I know you've given me her two of her books. And she said, well, it's a lecture called The Sanction of the Victims. And it was a talk that she gave in New Orleans. So it was a very hot day. And I sat on this cold tile, tile floor and heard this thick Russian accent. And I said, who the hell is this woman? She said, Ayn Rand. I said, I know you've given me her books and I haven't read them. And there began this enormous journey that would change my life and my way of thinking. And Rand, of course, started out by saying, I must announce that I'm not an economist and I have no purely economic advice to give you. I sat riveted listening to this conversation. And I, the conversation, was, the, the talk was barely over when I ran back to my house and I started The Fountainhead and I didn't like it. So I said, do you have any other books? She said, well, I gave you Atlas Shrugged and I started Atlas Shrugged and I said, I don't like it. So she gave me the Romantic Manifesto and an Introduction to Epistemology introduction to objectives to pathology, which I tore through. And I said, I'm going to be a philosopher. Then I read The Fountainhead and I fell in love with it. And then I read Atlas Shrugged on my way to, well, I read Atlas Shrugged the following year, but I read The Fountainhead twice. And I said, okay, I'm going to be a philosopher. And Jennifer, that began the journey. Rand gave me a sort of, I'd been reading Nietzsche, which I thought, whom I thought was quite unruly and I'd read Kant, whom I thought was a horrible writer. And I'd read a little bit of other philosophers like Schelling and Schiller and some of the German idealists, but they struck me as, as horrible writers with interesting ideas. Then I read this, this woman who was a wonderful stylist and who had this extraordinary sense of life 
and an exalted vision for the luminous potential of man. And I thought, can one actually do this with one's life? So I originally thought I was going to be, and I wanted to be a novelist all my life, and I wanted to be a writer. And I thought, but could one become a philosopher? And uh, so, you know, the the following year, we, we left for America, for America. And the story I, I tell is that, and I wrote an article in Salon that I landed in America with my hand around my grandmother's back um, with Atlas Shrug kind of protecting her with Ayn Rand under the ages of Ayn Rand protecting her, her perspiring back as we left the airport. And, um, and that was it. I mean, my mind was made up that I was going to be a philosopher. Ayn Rand was the thinker that convinced me that philosophy was, it was possible to be a full-time philosopher and earn a living from philosophy. And that's such an interesting um, kind of path that you were introduced. Well, first it was the, the interview. It was hearing her, her, her voice um, or her lecture. And then uh, you kind of went to sample the, the novels and then no, then really it was kind of the, uh, the nonfiction. And mm -hmm. interestingly enough, um, the Romantic Manifesto that yeah. kind of got you into, into the, the tracks and, and then opened you to the rest of the, the, her oeuvre. Um, so you talk about that very moving um, experience with your, with your grandmother on the plane with her dolled up and her, and her pearls. Um, and then of course, within the book, you talk about your, uh, your experience coming to America and, and what you encountered and that your, your impression was not one of uh, sort of racist bigotry and institutional uh, racism, but, but the American, the American dream. Um, the book was published in, in 2018 and so in, in many ways, your critique of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, appears particularly prescient in, in retrospect. What is your, your movement today? Um, particularly, we're, we're seeing this again, uh, most recently in, in the past uh, few nights in, in Minneapolis and in the riots and the, and the looting there. Um, how does, how does it, the mission of Black Lives Matter uh, stand at odds with your personal experience and also with what you have as your, your vision for America? Well, I, before Black Lives Matter took down the charter, its charter, I, I read it and a friend subsequently sent it to me again. And in sort of preparation for this interview, I read it. And it's, I think it's a very nefarious movement. I mean, it is, first of all, it's, it's completely against capitalism. It denigrates capitalism to no end. It, it advocates not just the destruction of the United States of America and the Republic, it, it advocates the destruction and the breaking up of all US banks and the economy of the United States. It, it sides, uh, aligns itself with critical race theory, which is another nefarious, very racist um, ideology that among other things um, advocates the view that racism suffuses every aspect of existence and that if one is white, one is automatically a racist and has gone over and beyond that viewpoint to suggest that logic and reason are not only coterminous with racism, but that logic and reason um, are, 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 are supportive of white supremacist thought. Black Lives Matter is um, in total agreement 
in addition to that, they're terribly anti-Semitic, not just terribly anti-Israel, um, they're terribly anti-Semitic um, and ad advocate the view that Israel is a genocidal and apartheid state. Um, so they, and they admit that they're, they're a Marxist organization, that they're organizers and that they are, their leaders are, are trained in Marxist techniques and in Marxist ideologies, which they intend, they make no bones about it, they intend to promulgate and to spread across American societies and to suffuse and infuse all spheres of life with that sort of ideology. It's a collectivist, dangerous ideology that I reject wholeheartedly because it stands at odds with the experiences I had. When I came to America in 1985, I must tell you, we came to Atlanta and um, the neighborhood that I moved in was called Stone Mountain, which was predominantly populated by Ku Klux Klan members. So every other, apart, every other house that I passed was adorned with a Confederacy flag. And it was very interesting at the end of my grandmother, who was the daughter of a Sephardic Jewish father, um, but who later converted to Catholicism, um, or who practiced Catholicism, I should say, um, because it was just very easy, just easier, um, was the most beloved member of that church. Um, and I made it very clear that I would brook no respect from any member. I, I didn't come with a fear of white people. I didn't come with a fear of changing anybody's lifestyle. I made it very clear that if you called me a boy at 20 years old, I would say, I'm 20 years old and respectfully you need to, my name is Jason, by the way, what's yours? And I, I, you know, I showed no fear. I showed no hostility, just a sort of equanimity and a calmness of spirit. And, uh, and that I demanded reciprocal respect. And I encountered very little racism. I mean, I encountered my fair share of racism, which I dealt with head on. That I was not someone to be toyed with, that if you disrespected me, I would call you right there on the, on the spot and deal with it. And that in that vein, I was not a victim. So Atlanta in 1985 was a fabulous place to be in, uh, to, to live in. 15,000 Caribbean immigrants descended on Stone Mountain. And we, we used to say among ourselves, we're going to run those clan people out of the community not by intention, but just because 15,000 Caribbeans, all professionals, doctors, lawyers, bankers, my mother was an accountant, um, will terrify them and they'll move. And they did, they eventually just left peacefully. Um, so it was a joyous place. I worked three, hour, three jobs and 45 hours a, a, a week to put myself through school before I won a scholarship to do my PhD. And it was a wonderful struggle I had I worked from stuffing envelopes in a bank to returning bounced uh, che checks with insufficient funds to people. I mean, I did, I, sell, I sold magazine subscriptions. I did everything. And I graduated in three and a half years, magna cum laude at the top of my class. I did not see a, a street. I did not see systemic racism. I saw, along with my other immigrant friends, a country lined with gold. And we just took off little chunks of that gold piece by piece, and we built an edifice for ourselves. And we reminded ourselves that this was the most moral and the greatest country on the face of the earth. And that we were a part, that we were privileged because immigration, we told ourselves, we all had these conversations, was not a right. 
it was a privilege and we were so blessed to be here and to pick up these little, sometimes there were not chunks of gold. Sometimes the hardships were so hard that you could only find a little speck of gold, but you took up that little microscopic speck of gold and you, you saved it and you built this edifice that was your life that you were constructing. You had a vision, you had an ethos, you had principles, you had convictions and you inoculated yourself against hardship by living by your values and your convictions. Not like Black Lives Matter who sees a bigotry and racism and victim, victimhood as a central part of one's identity. So I think they're, they're paralyzing black, black children by telling them that their agency is uh, uh, expropriated every day, that they are nothing in this country, that they are hopeless when blacks and immigrants from all over and black Americans also in this country who don't bind to that narrative make something remarkable of their lives. Um, it's a horrible, horrible movement. Uh, and the idea that yes, black lives, the lives of black people do matter as do as the lives of all persons matter. But the movement itself, I think is quite nefarious and it contradicts everything in 35 years let me say this, I have never experienced disillusionment with this country. I've experienced the intellectual bankruptcy of the culture in certain, as Rand would say. I've experienced the, the trends in which this country is drifting towards. But this is not a monolithic, hermetically sealed country. There are enough vectors and there are enough candidates to which you can appeal to restore the country to its majestic grandeur and that's what I as an intellectual seek to do in my work and with my life so I would never sort of reduce America to this hopeless necrotic mass of helplessness or hopelessness I still have hope for this great republic and you're you're involved with uh, bringing that hope to, to others actively through through your work and I want to um, remind those of you that have joined us and we do have some questions, but uh, this is a wonderful opportunity. I highly recommend that you, uh, that you pick up Professor Hill's book, but you have an opportunity even before you do that to, to ask some of the, the questions. So Jason, you, you said that, you know, in your experience coming to Atlanta, your, your first stop in your journey here in the United States that you, you hadn't really experienced uh, uh, the kind of racism that you know, um, is the is almost the caricature that is being advanced by by Black Lives Matter. But that, as your academic career developed, that you you did experience different kinds of sort of subtle racism that uh, that people wanted you to fit into a certain box and to kind of play uh, your role in in their their narrative. Um, how? How have you survived uh, as a someone who is a free thinker? You know, someone who is an independent thinker and uh, who does not hold uh, politically correct views. Has that been has that been a struggle? It has been. A, it has not been a struggle because I've, again, I've, I've sort of taken um, um, sort of inspiration from what a line that I think Rand attributed to one of her characters. I don't know who it was. It might have been Rourke. I'm not brave enough to be a coward. 
Do you remember that see, line? See the, the consequences all too clearly. I see the consequences all too clearly. That line has resonated with me so clearly, Jennifer, because um, when you cannot look in the mirror and meet your eyes squarely, uh, you know that you're in big trouble. When you capitulate and you appease to your adversaries, um, then you know that you do not have the ammunition, moral ammunition, to fight the battles. That is to acquiesce in the face and to capitulate in the face of what you know to be egregious and in other words, in other cases, quite nefarious, uh, is to sell your soul out to the other side. And I, I've, even before reading Rand, I, I just didn't have the kind of vocabulary or the kind of um, integrated system, but I still was an intransigent individual as a child that wouldn't capitulate to that sort of malarkey. Um, it has not been a struggle. It has been exhausting to have to, to fight the orthodoxy. It's tiring on the body. It's tiring mentally. Um, but at the same time, there is a respect, a self-respect and a sort of emergent self-esteem that is a concomitant of living that sort of life that almost fills one with a sense of equanimity in the, in the midst of one's exhaustion. So I, I look at that battle with the academy and I've been censured, I've been canceled. I mean, I, I've been teaching RAND since I was an, a graduate student and recently I, I love to teach her epistemology, um, having taken lots of classes in epistemology and I was teaching her epistemology quite successfully for many years. And a student, a couple of students broke down, had meltdowns, one woman was crying and saying, you're teaching white supremacist thought. And I said, Rand, and Rand is not a white supremacist. In fact, she's probably the least racist person you, you might have been likely to have ever I, met. In I the mean, world. and I think she had one of the most eloquent sort of definitions and repudiations of, of racism as a, a barnyard version of collectivism. But they took the class away from me. They took the class away from me because um, we have no long sung solo in terms of you know intellectual depravity that the students said that this emphasis on logic uncertainty, uh, our forms, our constructs of racist, imperialist, white men. I said, Ayn Rand was a Russian Jew, just, just so you know. It doesn't matter, she's co-opted by the system. And so, you know, they took the class away from me and um, gave me some stupid class in like sociocultural issues, which I just turned into a course on the foundations of Western civilization, um, which I subsequently hated. Um, but um, to answer your question, you know, I just deal with it by, it's kind of like Jennifer, when people violate the rules of those of us who learn a foreign language and, and um, you, you just enforce the rules, right? So people are not free to conjugate verbs, irregular verbs, reg, you know, in their own way, you, you just enforce the rules. I just enforce the rules when, and I deal with, I deal that way with my colleagues when they, I were in my department, I'm not ashamed to say it. I mean, I'll just go on record. We had a Stalinist, we had a Maoist, we had a Chavist. It's a postmodernist department. That's that's a little bit wacky. And they they can't call me a Nazi um, a, a Nazi logician because I'm not I'm not a Nazi. I'm not I'm not a German. 
but I come as close to being called that because I emphasize reason and I emphasize logic at all stages in whether it's a faculty meeting or it's a class. So I just deal with it by, by trying to be rational and level-headed and sticking by reason and, and facts and logic all the time and just living my life that way. Because I know that to do otherwise would be to engage in a form of soul killing and soul death and infliction. One thing I learned from Socrates is that, <laughs> among other things, that you know, is that the only harm that can come to a person ultimately is the harm that he inflicts on himself. And I think you meant by that. Only you can really kill your own soul. You know, people can kill your body, but when you violate your integrity, that's the greatest harm that you can inflict on yourself. So you've talked about some of the, the Maoist, the Stalinist, uh, also some of the pressures that you uh, face from, from uh, kind of the, the, the bureaucracy uh, of academia. But in the example that you just gave, um, you there's also a kind of pressure that's coming from, from students. And uh, we recently had on the webinar, um, Greg Lukiana, who is, um, runs FIRE. Mm -hmm. And uh, in, in the book that he co-wrote with uh, Jonathan Haidt, The um, Coddling of the American Mind, he points out an interesting phenomenon, which is that a culture of safetyism it has encouraged a kind of fragility uh, among students and an epidemic, he calls it, of a sort of mental health a crisis mm -hmm. where students are coming onto campus um, feeling very, very fragile, feeling that they need protection, that listening to the ideas of your class could reduce someone to tears. Uh, have you experienced that as well, just in terms of the length of the time that you've been teaching and any change that you've been seeing in the student body? Oh, yeah. I mean, just um, in last semester when I taught this course on um, Western civilization, we were dealing with a particular section on the scientific method. And um, the, the number of students that are suddenly transitioning from, um, from one gender to the next has accelerated uh, in, a, in a peculiar manner to me. I had one student who started off as male and um, in a matter of two weeks, he was suddenly transitioning which is irrelevant to me, I, I, I don't care. But um, we got, I made a tweet um, on my Twitter account that in opposition to President Biden's um, endorsement of his, the, the equality, something to do with equality. I, anyway, I said on my tweet that um, trans women should not, who are, trans, who are biological men should not be allowed to compete with women, women's team because they have the advantage of physical male strength and that's why we have separate sport, sporting teams that are segregated by sex because a, biological, a trans woman is still a biological man who has a different bone density, has the physical strength and, and they, they're taking away scholarships from women. Anyway, this woman, trans woman claimed that I was the most um, violently transphobic man and that she attributed something I said in class, which I never brought it up in class, it was she trolled my Twitter account and it became, it made the headlines and it was in newspapers, in, in various newspapers in this country and certainly on campus. And uh, she was traumatized by it and, and was calling for the university to investigate me for sexual discrimination. And she had a meltdown and subsequently other students were taken to be traumatized by it. So, I mean, I see this all the time. Um, 
another student uh, made a statement that um, just, I think they're, they're trying to get professors, made a statement that um, I think I said something like philosophy being the, the mother of sciences or something. And she said, well, trans men, you can't say that because men can give birth to children. I said, no, men do not give birth to children. She said, well, like, they're trans men giving birth to children. I said, look, when a trans man gives birth to a child, let's just be very clear that it's a biological woman with her reproductive apparatus still intact. She's got ovaries and, and, and so on. And then the, the apparatus that are necessary to give birth to a child, it's a, it's a biological woman who is in the stage of transitioning, but you cannot change your sex. She still has a chromosomal markers that designate her um, that is the XX chromosomal markers that designate her as um, a woman. And the students were very, very traumatized by that. And I said, I said, I'm not making these up. These are facts that are unassailable. They are invariable. Their behavior with invariability as the scientific laws of nature. So Jennifer, yes, you see this in the classroom becoming more increasingly common where you, where science itself is claimed in this case as being sexist and the fragility of the students' egos are such that professors have to comport themselves where I am being admonished for saying something like, when I didn't even raise it in class, they were sort of baiting me that you cannot say that philosophy is the mother of all sciences because mothers don't only give birth, fathers now give birth because men are giving birth to children. And I said, that's I do not politicize my classroom. I do not, but I said, that's malarkey. That's scientifically untenable. It's not true. I'm stating a fact, an absolute. It's not true. Men do not give birth to children. Yeah, and it's also this, uh, as Ayn Rand, I think, dramatized uh, in, in Anthem, this control of the language. Yes. Because aside from the fact about this argument about whether women or men or who's, you know, you are using a phrase, the, the mother of, of all, all uh, uh, knowledge, and, um, and it's, it's being attacked that you're not supposed to use mother, it's gendered language. And so there's that, that's very much a, a kind of a postmodernist attempt to, to control the narrative and, and uh, intimidate people by um by compelling them to use certain kinds of terminology yeah i'm, I'm fortunate i have tenure somebody just posed a question i'm i've been at DePaul for 20 years i'm a senior professor a very senior the most among the most seniors of professors but you know i was it doesn't matter i mean i was as, as outspoken when i didn't have tenure as i am outspoken today and they have tried to i mean there have been movements to have me fired and they fired people with tenure i have a friend who was fired because he made a statement about Black Lives Matter. And in Florida, and they stormed the university and he's been a tenured professor there for 25 years and they fired him within two weeks. Um, so. So you, you live in, in Chicago um, and, and uh, that has been not probably a fun place to, to be living over the past year. You have had endured one of the, the strictest COVID lockdowns uh, in the country. I'm here in California, so I'm right there with you. Um, and, and the lockdowns arguably contributed to uh, the, the frustrations that, that, that resulted, erupted in, in, riot, in riots and 
and, uh, and looting. And this was all, of course, uh, amidst calls to defund the police. And, uh, and yet the um, Chicago is continuing to set records on the, the numbers of, uh, of homicides in, in the inner city, blacks shot by other blacks and uh, little attention has been paid to this tragedy. Um, you called uh, a couple of years ago, you called for President Trump to send troops into Chicago to stop this kind of gang warfare. What, what's driving the violence and uh, what's, keeping, what's keeping the city and state and, and federal authorities for that matter from addressing it effectively? Well, let me answer the last question first. Chicago is one of the most corrupt political, political cities in the country, which we all know goes back, back to the 30s and probably the 20s. So we have an infrastructure that is that is corrupt, and those decent people who who join the non-corrupt system are helpless because they either become complicit with corruption or they're just ensconced in a in a very corrupt system. So we have people who are just guilty of dereliction of duty, um, and are just mired in in a, a quagmired in a system that is just you know. One could talk about what happens when a, a particular mayor years ago gets elected and he receives federal funding from uh, from the, the, the from Washington and what he does with the money is gives his donors he allocates the funds among donors rather than let's say spend it in funding the police or we have a system of public education whether one agrees with private public education I don't believe in government schools but we have a system of public education, so give it to the public schools, right? Um, so it's so corrupt. And um, so there's just a mass dereliction of duty, duties across the board in this, in this state um, from all, in all spheres of, of public life. But I think more importantly is that uh, what's going on is a reluctance to simply end the gang warfare. Like we know where these gangs are and we know who they are. And it's just a reluctance to, well, police officers are vastly underpaid in this, in this country, first of all. Many of them have to work two jobs to make ends meet. Um, and there are a couple of problems with the police force. I mean, I'm, I'm radically pro-police, pro pro-law pro, um, um, enforcement. I used to give money uh, to the blue to blue lives. Um, but at the same time, there are some serious problems with law enforcement. I mean, look, I've been in New York City and I've gone to the police and I've said, who are standing in the train station, I've just said, officer, how do I get from point A, you know, to here to there? Because my cell phone is dead. And she looks at me and she says, go look on your effing phone. And I say, okay. And I go to another police officer and I said, you know, how do I get from, and he's like, on the train. So, there are some real issues with, with, I'm not indicting all police officers as being feral beasts, but um, there used to be a time, I remember when I first came to, and this was the deep South, right? We're talking the Atlanta in 1985, where I, as a black person, did not fear the police officers. They patrolled the neighbors and I, neighborhoods, and I'd be, jog, I'd be the only black person in my neighborhood, and I'm jogging, the skinny 20-year-old kid jogging. And the police officers would roll around. They would say, um, they would make fun. They would say like, um, hey, spaghetti arms, because <laughs> I was really thin. 
right? They were ensconced in the community and you felt that they were there to be your advocate, to be your protector. They weren't, first of all, they were driving around these old, like 1979 Buicks. They weren't in these armored vehicles. Vehicles. So you, they, they felt like they were part of the community, like they were there to protect you. They were there to look out for you. I think there's a sense now that police officers are there to spook you, to threaten you. So one of the things that I think needs to be done, not just in Chicago, but across communities, is to pay police officers a lot more money so that they and to insert them in these communities and to build relationships between themselves and the communities where they communities actually do not feel an adversarial relationship with the police officers. And the second thing is we need to just we need to root out these gangs. We know where these gang members are. And once these gang members are there and the spike, the crime rates are spiking, what we're seeing in Chicago is businesses are just leaving. It's going to be like Detroit. The downtown area is, is going to be a gutted area in no time at all. And so if we have these astronomical crime rates, which are seeping into the, the, the bougie areas where I live now in the north side of Chicago, which is supposed to be really pristine, the gangs are moving in. I'm scared to leave my house sometimes uh, at night. Um, we're going to see a flight of, of businesses. And one of the things is to just apply law uh, and order. Uh, I know that sounds very Trumpish. I don't care. Um, I'm, I'm an independent conservative. I, I don't vote one way or the other. I vote whomever I feel for vote, voting for. But I think a law and order approach in order to attract businesses back into the community. But I think police officers are just underpaid and we don't have the kind of uh, law enforcement infrastructure to really get rid of these gangs, which is why I wrote that letter to President Trump, which went viral, asking him to send in the troops to sort of squash these gangs, because these gangs are, they're domestic terrorists, really. I mean, they unleash, I can't, it's unspeakable unless you live in Chicago. You do not I, I know. To, yeah, I wanted to get to that, because that was something that, that you uh, wrote about in your, your book. Um, yeah. when you talked about black on black crime as a quote national security disaster and, and risk yeah and i i've never heard it framed that quite that way now you just mentioned this issue of domestic terrorism what, what do you mean when you talk about it as a, a national security risk well so let me just read this some of the statistics here and then i explain it so you know according to the u.s department of justice blacks account for 52.5% 52, 52 of all homicide offenders um, from 1980 to 2008, with whites accounting for 45%. And the offending rate for Blacks, the number who commit homicides as a percentage of the Black population was almost eight times higher than that for whites. Most homicides are in, intraracial, with 84% of white victims killed by whites and 93% of Black victims killed by Blacks. Now, that's that's pretty that's pretty frightening because what that speaks to me is a kind of slow this is going to sound hyperbolic and i try to, to be very measured in my in both my writing and my speaking but it sounds to me like there's a slow slow growing genocide let me qualify that that's too hyperbolic but i'll use the metaphor i'll use the term anyway um in a muted way just lower that term 
um, that's taking place within black communities in Chicago and across in Baltimore, in Detroit, um, by blacks killing other blacks, that's quite scary. And what that means is that we're going to see the atrophying of black communities of escalating black deaths. That is a national security disaster to me. I mean, when you have, it's so bad, Jennifer, that they don't even report anymore. When you have like little three-year-old girls and eight-year-old girls and 17 people being mowed down over a weekend in Chicago, and it's just reported on the news that, yeah, um, an, another spate of killings in Chicago, onto the next new items. And then you have to sort of search for these spate of killings involve like 12 girls under the age of 10. Uh, that's pretty serious. That to me, when you, and then you watch the news very carefully among death rates in Baltimore, in New Orleans, in Detroit, in Chicago, and this is happening week after week. And the statistics vary, you know, one month that goes down and the next month it goes up and then one year it goes down. But we're talking about people dying, literally people dying. And these crimes are being committed. It's not white people that are getting getting guns and going to black communities and killing people. It's not police officers who are getting their 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 guns and going in and mowing down people. It's these it's it's mostly gang members, right, who are killing. And it's average. The, the most black people in these communities are upstanding, good, poor people who just want to put food on their children's clothes. As a professor, I have met so many students who have had to drop out of school because they cannot cross the gang, the gang turf. So they drop out. This is, this is a national security disaster. When I have students at DePaul who have scholarships, it's $40,000 a year. They have scholarships and they cannot come to class because they can't cross certain gang turfs for fear of being killed or being inscripted. The only way they can cross is that if they become conscripted into the gangs. This is what I mean by national security disaster. And you hear these stories over and over and over again. So you're, you mentioned um, that uh, we should be paying police officers more, which uh, reminds me of uh, one of the morals and markets courses that Richard Salzman, Professor Richard Salzman of Duke, who is our, our senior scholar, had uh, said, we don't need to defund the police, we need to upfund the police. And I see that uh, Professor Salzman, who has ignored my keep them short um, admonition on the questions, but uh, it is Professor Salzman. So he does pull rank. And he, we've got a question from him, him here. He's a, a fellow objectivist. And he writes, your early love of America is amazing, especially it's linked to watching American TV. Uh, is this a good reason for pro-American, whether conservative, libertarian, or objectivist, to be more welcoming of immigrants and less critical of Hollywood and TV programming? In short, no, Richard is not short. Uh, is it wrong to assume that most incoming Americans are not pro-American, not pro-liberty, but are instead eager to go on welfare, break laws, demand status measures, and vote for pro-socialist Democrats. So I guess he's asking that question that there is a, a concern that, uh, that one party is, is a, a more welcoming of uh, at least a certain kind of, of, of uh, immigrant, immigrants coming uh, illegally across our Southern border and a fear um, on the part of another party 
that uh, that this is an effort to kind of um, push a kind of demographic change that will that will in, wait in the favor of one party over the other. Uh, what's the professor's last name? Professor Richard Salzman of, of Duke. Professor Salzman. I've, I've heard of Professor Salzman. Yeah, Professor, that's a great question. And I and I have to say, after 35 years of living in this country, that I have seen a market change in the attitudes of a lot of immigrants who, um, as a, and I say this as a professor of 25 years in a classroom and as someone who's traveled across the country and given so many talks, that today's immigrants, and I'm shocked, I mean, I speak with immigrants now of, of my generation, I'm 55, there's a marked difference in the immigrants that are coming today that, and I don't want to speak and make gross generalizations, but when immigrants of my generation and of my mother's generation um, came to America, I know when I came and I interacted with a lot of immigrants, not just from my school, but from other schools, there was no sense of entitlement. There was no sense that the government owed you anything, that the state owed you anything. In fact, I never collected Pell Grant. I never had government assistance. Uh, there was no sense that even, I didn't have medical insurance. I mean, I had an appendectomy and uh, it cost me $6,000 and it took me years. I mean, I had, no, I, I had quit my full-time job and I got appendicitis like, two weeks after quitting my full-time job with benefits. There was no sense of entitlement that the state should pay for this. Now, what really, really worries me, Jennifer and the professor, is that I see immigrants coming into this country, both legally and illegally, who think that they should have the right to vote. Now, I became a citizen. I got came here with a green card and I became a citizen um, after the period of qualification, I mean, five years, I became a citizen in 2002 and I came here in 1985. Um, I didn't think I had a right to vote until I became a citizen. Um, I see a market and I think that the, the far left and the not so far left is selling a particular kind of narrative to immigrants know that you have a right to vote. You have a right to, to, to a driver's license. You have a right to all these entitlements that are being sold and I think that concern is very real. There was not that the left at the time that I came to this country was not so far left that it was selling these kinds of narratives to immigrants that you find the far left and the not so far left, just as to say the left is now selling to immigrants as a way of buying votes. This is, was totally alien to the immigrants of my generation when we came here. Um, so I think the professor is, is probably right that there is there are narratives and that there are ideologies that are being sold and pushed towards immigrants who are coming here, selling them entitlements, selling them that they have that actually they have a right to be here. See, when I was I, I just felt that I'd won the lottery when I got to America. I didn't feel I had a right to be in America. I just thought I won the lottery. I won the lottery because I didn't, I was schooled to think that immigration is a privilege that's conferred on you by the host country that you're entering, that there are several criteria by which you are vetted and 
assuming that you even meet all the criteria, there are going to be no guarantees that you're going to be let in, that not everybody gets let in. And so count yourself lucky if you get let in. And so when I got let in, I was like, yes, I'm so lucky. And, and actually Ayn Rand, I think she did win a lottery. Um, and that is what, uh, which is kind of amazing that she was able to come to the United States at the time yeah. that, that she did. Um, so she probably shared the same, the same sense of, of that privilege. Uh, so Lawrence Borland, um, who's one of the supporters of our work, thank you, Lawrence, uh, has a follow-up to Professor Salzman's question. And you're saying, you know, well, actually, yeah, there, there, you have seen a marked difference, uh, Professor. You know, you have seen a, a, a change over the past 25 years in terms of the attitudes among immigrants. Um, and Lawrence is asking, is that sense of entitlement uh, any different than the shift that's happened? Um, it's, he's he's uh, saying that the shift that's happened in a large percentage of Americans themselves, native-born Americans. Right. So that's a very good question. No, I think that's, and this is something that I that I am going to be addressing in my forthcoming book, what which is out in October, what do white Americans owe black people, racial justice in the age of post-oppression. No, I think that that this sense of entitlement is that the immigrant sense of entitlement is a macrocosm of a part of a large, uh, um, a microcosm part of part of a larger macrocosm that you do see this sense of entitlement um, and you see it mostly in the kids in the classroom. That is a growing part of, which is alarming to me, um, a growing part of um, the American, the American parts of the American voice, shall I say, that more and more Americans feel that they're entitled to healthcare, that they're entitled to any number of services provided by others that they're not entitled to. You're not entitled to the efforts that other people generate on behalf of their own lives. But we see that through model thinking, through an inability of thinkers, including philosophers, well, let's just forget philosophers because they're just a dead breed and irrelevant and, and, and useless as um, you know, I don't know, I don't know, but, but just through an absence of clear thinking and an exposition of what are rights and how to distinguish rights from entitlements, there, there are very few voices, public voices out there ex distinguishing what are rights and what are entitlements and what are privileges. And coupled with a mass cultural relativism that is growing like fungi across this country where everyone thinks that whatever they feel, that their feelings are, are what adjudicate competing truth claims. We see that I just feel that this is my entitlement and there are no rejoinders, there are no counterfactuals. And when I do encounter counterfactuals and rejoinders, guess what? I get to class them as racist and I get to class them as oppressive and I get to class them as being traumatic, that, that they traumatize me. And then there's an institution that punishes those people who claim that my rights claims because they're not met are uh, those people who, who attack them are racist or sexist 
Um, so the whole thing is just one big gigantic mess that is bringing this republic to its feet. And yeah, I think I know how we got here. Um, how we get out of it is going to take a great deal of work. But to answer the question, yeah, there is a growing sense of entitlement um, and that's, that's, increased, that's growing increasingly. So, and the immigrant uh, vo vector of that section is just a microcosm of it. Um, that's people, politicians are just exploiting those immigrants and using them as political pawns. Um, but I think we should, we should also not generalize because I think when we looked at the Hispanic vote in, in Texas, you know, not all in Cuba, I mean, not, not all immigrants are susceptible. Some immigrants are fleeing. Look, some immigrants are fleeing despotic socialist governments and know what it's like to have socialism ruin their countries and are not all, so immigrants are not a monolithic group, right? So we are, I wanna be careful here and be new, a little bit nuanced and say that I have encountered vast immigrant groups also uh, in my, my walks through life who, who saw socialism destroy their countries, saw nationalism destroy industries and um, who were oppressed and will not be taken in by these, by these, these, these race hustlers. We have, uh, and we're actually, wow, this, the time has flown, but um, we were brought together, Professor Hill and I, by our admiration for Ayn Rand. And so we have a question from one of our viewers, John Fariello, who asks if you introduce your students to Ayn Rand, and if so, which, which books? We know that you introduce them to the Atlas Society, though you may not have known that you were introducing them to the Atlas Society with your pocket guide to postmodernism that we didn't didn't even know that yep. uh, yes 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 I, so but I, yes but but uh yeah how, how do you because um you're not teaching literature but oh well well i i have a double major in literature and philosophy but let me say that once i got to america as an undergraduate um i'm not by nature someone who likes to proselytize in speech i proselytize in writing but I became like a proselytizer of Ayn Rand's ideas. I would buy, I, I spent like hundreds of dollars on my credit card as an undergraduate, stupidly, of course, putting Atlas Shrugged in my professor's mailbox saying, you must read this, not knowing, of course, that they hated Rand. But the minute I got to graduate school to do my PhD and I became an instructor, they gave me part of my fellowship involved, my scholarship involved teaching my own class. I immediately, I didn't feel, although I'd read, I'd, I'd taken a number of courses in epistemology, I didn't quite feel comfortable teaching introduction to objectivist epistemology. So I started off teaching the virtue of selfishness and started off teaching capitalism, the unknown ideal in my introduction to my intro classes. And then when I got my first tenure track job, I started teaching um, Rand's essay on man's rights and um, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology and the, the opening essay in, in um, The Virtue of Selfishness, what is um, um, that, that essay, um, The Objectivist Ethics. So, uh, and then when I teach my survey, my, one of my specializations is, my main specialization besides ethics is of course, um, political philosophy. So I teach a course on the survey of European political thought from the 13th century up to the, the 19th century. So I put Rand in conversation with Locke 
And then I put Rand, when I teach a, the objectivist epistemology section, I put her in conversation with Aristotle. So I have her, I teach the organon and the posterior analytics in conjunction with um, introduction to objectivist epistemology. And I show what Aristotle was doing in the organon, how Rand was improving, I think, on Aristotle in many ways. And it's a wonderful, it, well, it used until they took the class away from me. It was a wonderful exchange, you know, between, between a conversation between Ayn Rand and Aristotle. And I, so I haven't been able to teach her for about a year, but I have been, I have been teaching her ideas. Uh, I think much of the chagrin of my colleagues for 24 years now in the classroom. Well, and uh, we have among the various programs that we offer students here at the Atlas Society, we have the Atlas Intellectuals, uh, which Professor Stephen Hicks um, leads up with his waterfall section of our website. We have our Morals and Markets course that Professor Salzman uh, has, has brought to the Atlas Society. And, uh, and we do have also our book clubs with the Atlas Advocates. And, uh, and we also use that as an opportunity to introduce um, our, our young people to various authors. So perhaps we'll have to be able to convince you to come on and uh, let us have the students read this and have a bit of a conversation with you as well. Be wonderful. And so Jeff Kiviet, I, I think we answered your question about uh, Professor Hill's specialization. Professor Hill, is there any, any other areas that we have not covered uh, that, that you want to leave our, our listeners and viewers with? Um, well, I, I, I want to sort of emphasize, well, I te also teach friends, I teach a course on philosophy of literature and I teach the Fountainhead, sections from the Fountainhead and passages from Atlas Shrugged. Um, it strikes me that Rand is very, very much relevant today, given the fact that we are living in a society where feelings predominate so much of our conversations. And I am just appalled at the extent to which so much non-objectivity suffuses our conversations today and people suffuse their conversations with emotionalism and, and I think given the balkanization of our culture today where identity politics is in the ascendancy, you know, we have a black laureate poet, Amanda Gorman, who chose a white uh, Dutch poet to translate her poem and a black Dutch journalist decided that this was not going to happen. And we have had four white European poets canceled because they're not black for translating her poems, her poem. We are seeing identity politics rear its ugly head. And I think we're becoming so much more race conscious in this country. And Rand stood for the exact opposite of that. She stood for individualism. And I think there are so many people who are still clinging on to some kind of symbolic ethnicity to give themselves, you know, riding on the social prestige of a particular ethnic identity where I think we have to practice individualism right? We have to practice some sense that though in, and Rand, what I loved, I mean, I had read, and I still teach this, the Stoics, Zeno, um, Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, Masonius, um, um, but there's something which all of whom advocate the inviolate worth of the individual, but there was something about Rand embodying those values in her characters, which I've never seen before, maybe because she did it in fiction, that we have to simply 
in our lives communicate in valid, in indivisible worth of each individual life by practicing, be, by being walking practitioners of reason, individualism. And, um, and the other thing I want to say before we go, Jennifer, is that a lot of people are afraid to admit that they're admirers of Ayn Rand. There's just a lot of closeted Randiness or there. You don't have to be an objectivist. I mean, I live by a lot of objectivist principles. I prefer to say I'm a, I'm a scholar. I'm a deep admirer of objectivism because if I, you know, for some people, if you deviate from one principle, you're, you're not an objectivist and you're cast out. I'm a deep admirer of objectivism. I'm a scholar of objectivism. I, I'm an admirer of, object, of Ayn Rand and I'm not afraid to say this. And I think there's so many people who should just be pushing her ideas in the culture because she's needed today. And to come out and say she had a wonderful sense of life. She celebrated human ability in an age of mediocrity where she vulgarity and crassness uh, and are, 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 are celebrated and refinement and elegance and beauty are looked down upon and spat upon. And this woman gave her life to reason and intelligence and and beauty and stylization and all these things that are missing from our culture, we all have to extol them in our personal lives and 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 to celebrate them. And we, I think, I know Rand would not would probably admonish me for saying we have a duty to do so. I don't think we have a duty, but I think given the way that ugliness and crassness are becoming what you would say not um, militantly bankrupt. Our culture is not militantly bankrupt, so routinely bankrupt that I take it as my responsibility to sort of suffuse the world with those values. And I would really like to see all of us in this world do this because the world's becoming a very, very ugly, ugly place. And, and there's so much beauty in the world that just needs to be brought out and celebrated because it is a wonderful world in the end. I mean, we're all beautiful people if we could just bring ourselves to, to discipline ourselves, to be walking practitioners of the best within what objectivism and advocates. I agree, and I, I certainly see that in you, in, in your uh, beautiful writing, in your beautiful story of, of the transformations, the various incarnations that you have been through. Um, yes, perhaps it's not a, a duty, but uh, for those of us who have felt privileged as I do to, to be Americans and to, uh, to have discovered Ayn Rand, um, part of what motivates me at the Atlas Society is I, I feel like I'm in debt and I have the honor to be able to uh, to pay back that debt with the work that, that we do day in, day out, 24-7 at the Atlas Society, bringing these ideas, celebrating the idea, having fun with these ideas uh, with young people, in, in particularly with uh, digitally creative ways, and now spectacularly uh, with our expansion globally. So if you are enjoying the webinars like this with Professor Hill and enjoying the work of the Atlas Society and feel that it's important to, to have these values uh, propagated and, um, and celebrated in America, please do consider supporting the work that we do. We are a nonprofit and I'm very grateful to see many of our, our donors and supporters here on the webinar. And I'm grateful for all of you who to support our work. I'm very grateful for you, Professor Hill. This oh, has been an absolute so treasure. Um, you have a standing invitation to come to Malibu. Uh, I hope you'll come and join us 
at our gala in, in November where we'll be honoring uh, Peter Thiel. And uh, if not sooner, otherwise I will, I will see you in Chicago. Um, well, if you give me an invitation, you know, I love, I love planes. I'm a plane addict, so I'll be on that jet plane. Okay, <laughs> great. We'll see you soon. Okay. And we will, we'll, do, we'll do a live webinar from here, uh, Professor Hill and JAG at okay. Malibu Fortress of Solitude. So great to see you. Thanks, everyone. And Thank uh, we will see you next week. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.